From the History Yogi podcast, this is Dave. Before he was president of Singapore, Yusuf Ishak was the Yang Di Pertuan Negara, which directly translates to he who is made lord. Singaporeans generally know little about this role other than it was the predecessor to the current presidency and a symbol of self-government. But in fact, the British, Federation of Malaya and Singapore leaders all actively struggled to define the Yang Di Pertuan Negara's powers and symbolism so that the office would align with their political vision for the island. Today, we speak to Mohamed Suhail, a PhD candidate at the University of Cambridge, who has authored a new book on the Yang Di Pertuan Negara. We discuss the intense debate over Singapore's future constitutional arrangements in the 1950s, the British desire to keep effective control over Singapore, Malaya's fears of communist influence, and Singapore's demand for a public symbol of true autonomy. Thanks very much, Suhail, for joining us today. Uh, to start off, why did you feel it was important to investigate the role of Yang Di Pertuan Negara? Thanks, Dave. Uh, I'm very happy to be on the History Yogi podcast. I believe that the Yang Di Pertuan Negara has often been portrayed as a passing landmark in Singapore's history. Significant enough to be mentioned, and yet not significant enough to warrant a thorough investigation by historians. It's one of those things that are so visible to the extent of being invisible. You can take a look at any historical work or textbook on Singapore during the 1950s and the 1960s. The Yang Di Pertuan Negara has always been there. So personally, I have been curious about this understudied, mysterious office because it was styled with such an ostentatious title, which some of the listeners may easily recognize as akin to titles used for Malay royalty. As a historian, I felt that this neglect is troubling because the office has for so long been taken for granted as a mere foreigner to the Singaporean presidency, or perhaps a strange construction from the bygone period of merger and separation. But the office must have been important enough to the people of that time for it to be memorialized time and time again in so many sources and in so many narratives. What nationally significant moments are we forgetting because of this neglect? There is and has to be a deeper, more enriching story, a story about Singapore's past that demands a telling. But I honestly think that this neglect is somewhat understandable because of mistaken impressions about parliamentary heads of state. It is important to correct the perception that these supposedly ceremonial offices was, were rather isolated from the politics of the day. So this is simply not true of the Yang Di Pertuan Negara, and neither it is, is it true in the cases of other countries that adhere to the Westminster model of government. This model invests in the head of state the dignified aspects of government, similar to the role of the British monarch in the United Kingdom. These heads of state largely perform legitimizing functions like appointing key officers, signing bills into law, or gracing state functions, and not so much the power to make laws, dispense economic wealth, or issue directives. 
which fall under the job scope of ministers and parliament. Even though these heads of state are supposedly neutral and presumably independent of party politics, the selections, actions, and dispositions undertaken in the name of these officers are inherently political. I felt that there is a more complicated story regarding relations of power to be told when we dismantle these, these so-called ceremonial officers and cast them in a more critical light. Furthermore, it is important to investigate the role of the young Dipetuan Negara because it would recover underappreciated aspects of Singapore's political heritage. First, concerning the island's connections with the Commonwealth of Nations, countries that share the predicaments of being former components of the British Empire. Second, concerning the Malay world, Singapore has never been separated from the larger region. And third, concerning the Global South, a world community that shares the experience of colonialism and domination by Western powers. And now as a collective, stands for a shared commitment to the equality of all nations. So Singapore's position in these three global orders came with different sets of values, political cultures, and hierarchies. Therefore, the Yang Dipertuan Negara was more than just a forgotten state institution or a parochial construction for national purposes. If we dig deeper, we begin to see how such an office reveals the nicks and crooks of what Singapore was like during the fascinating period of decolonization. It illuminates the competitive nature of the political landscape of the day and it, and it exposes understudied global dimensions of the island's history. Now set the scene for us. What were the considerations and concerns of the British Federation and Singapore leaders regarding constitutional changes in the mid-1950s? So Dave, in, in, in the mid-1950s, the British under the new Conservative government were adamant to hold on to pretensions that Britain remained a great power in spite of its economic and strategic weaknesses. So following the devastation of the Second World War, the rise of the two superpowers, the United States and the Soviet Union, also overshadowed Britain's global influence. Empire remained a critical part of British calculation, or to be more accurate, miscalculations, to maintain their dominance. Based on this worldview, British plans for Singapore was that it should, be, it should remain under colonial rule because British bases on the island were important to maintain their strategic interests in the region, whether to deter communist aggression or maintain stability for British businesses. Bear in mind, at this time in the 1950s, British and Commonwealth forces had been fighting a violent war with the Malayan Communist Party, or the MCP. The rise of communism as an anti-business, anti-British force undermined Britain's strategic interests in the region. British desire to remain a great power and to maintain their paramount status required them to be the final arbiter of Singapore's fate. But they couldn't go around doing as they please because the global context was very different from the period before the Second World War. But due to the pressure of the, of the global community, which became increasingly intolerant towards colonialism, the British also had to ensure that demands of self-government in its colonies 
in, in their colonies, uh, which included Singapore, among others, needed to be placated. Otherwise, Britain might lose global legitimacy. Leaders of the Federation of Malaya, in the meantime, demanded independence. To achieve this, there were two requirements. First, they had to ensure that the communist threat from the MCP remained at bay. Second, there must be some agreement on the political arrangement between the different racial groups in Malaya. What would citizenship laws look like for, for non-Malay Malayans in a post-colonial Malaya where the Malays maintain political dominance? What role would the Malay rajas and sultans play? What rights would each racial community have? After the Second World War, Singapore was already constitutionally separated from the Federation, even though both entities were still British dependents. Adding Singapore into the Federation mix with Singapore's um, dominant Chinese population and reputation for being a hub of communist underground activities would overcomplicate negotiations for Malayan independence. Finally, Singaporean leaders like their counterparts in the Federation, also wanted independence for Singapore. Despite their political affiliations, they were unanimous about one thing, that Singapore should not remain a British colony forever. The only realistic way for them to get rid of colonial rule was to achieve merger with Malaya because first, it was thought that Singapore was too weak and too small to be able to survive as an independent sovereign state. Second, the British would never trust an independent Singaporean government to safeguard their military and business assets on the island. But as part of a larger, stable Malaya, a restive Singapore could be kept in check by the anti-communist government in Kuala Lumpur. What Singaporean leaders could not agree on, however, was the shape and form of how best to achieve merger. Since the Tengku was resisting merger, in the medium term, Singaporean leaders needed to ensure the people of Singapore could hold their dignity despite being colonial dependents of Britain. Furthermore, by the 1950s, the world was already decolonizing and the political currency of the day was anti-colonialism and self-determination. The idea of an anti-colonial revolution was therefore appealing to the people across all divides because it promised the end of the exploitative colonial enterprise, the cure for the miseries of post-war daily life. In other words, to be successful politically, Singaporean leaders had to be successful nationalists. Due to, the, to these divergent aspirations, the British leaders of the Federation and leaders of Singapore, the island's fate remained uncertain. Singapore was therefore trapped in a kind of limbo. During the 1956 and 1957 constitutional talks in London, the primary dynamic was this. How can some level of national dignity without infringing on Britain's sovereignty over the island while also buying enough time to persuade Malayan leaders to accept Singapore into the federation? The outcome of these negotiations was the self-governing constitution of 1958, which gave Singapore as much internal autonomy as possible, with Britain maintaining ultimate authority and responsibility over the island's defense and external affairs. As part of these arrangements, Singapore would have its own local-born appointee to serve the functions of head of state.
Focusing on the role of a local head of state, why did the British reject the idea of a Malayan governor general and what was Singapore's response? So Singaporean leaders under the direction of uh, Chief Minister David Marshall initially proposed the establishment of a Malayan or local-born governor general who would not only serve as a politically neutral crown representative, but also become a symbol to inspire Singaporeans to believe in a future free from colonial rule. The person who would fill this role would be appointed by Her Majesty the Queen, who remained sovereign of Singapore. Meanwhile, the executive role of British official would be in charge of Singapore's defence and external affairs. His role would be invested in a separate office called the British Commissioner and directly appointed by the British government. This was an effective split from the existing role of the colonial governor, who for over 100 years was not only the representative of the crown, but also had gubernatorial duties. This meant that the colonial governor was previously an all-powerful British official who had the authority to enact and veto laws, to pardon criminals, to appoint officials to run the colony. So he could exercise his, his authority with relative impunity. By turning the governor into a governor general, the office would be deprived of all these unchecked powers and would perform largely ceremonial duties. The British resisted this proposal for a Malayan governor general because of two reasons. The first was international. The office of governor general was usually established in former colonies of the British Empire, countries who remain a part of Commonwealth realms but still retain the British crown as sovereign. These countries at that time included white dominions like Australia, Canada and New Zealand, along with newly independent South Asian ex-colonies like Ceylon and Pakistan. These were all independent nation-states with full autonomy over all their affairs, internal and external. Singapore, however, was to remain a British colony, which enjoyed only some measure of independence in its internal affairs. Therefore, the British were afraid that establishing a governor-general in Singapore would make the other ex-colonies disillusioned about staying in the Commonwealth and would cheapen their independence because not even colonies like Singapore could get their own governor-general. Perhaps more importantly, a governor-general of Singapore might give false signal that the island was already independent and that the British were withdrawing. This would be an embarrassment reminiscent of the fall of Singapore, which took place only 15 years earlier during the Second World War. So it would give the communist forces the mistaken impression that Singapore, a small Chinese-majority state, was now up for grabs in a global Cold War tussle. The second reason why the British was reticent towards a local-born governor-general was actually more practical. So they were afraid that a local-born crown representative might frustrate the British government's administration of its, you know, of its two exclusive jurisdictions of defence and external affairs and in doing so, undermine the overall sovereignty of Britain over Singapore. For example, let's say if the British commissioner was to declare a state of emergency because of a security threat, he would still need a willing crown representative to approve emergency powers and suspend the constitution. Uh, edicts, directives, and policies relating to defence and external affairs 
would also need the endorsement of a locally born non-British person for them to have the force of law. So you can imagine, what if this local born governor general was an anti-colonial, independent-minded person? What if this local born governor general perform a check and balance function on, math, on matters that were still under British authority? So the British would not allow it. And, and no matter how resistant the British were, Singaporean leaders under the leadership of Lim Yew Hock, who replaced Marshall as chief minister in, in, after the constitutional talks of 1956, so the Singaporean leaders were adamant to keep this idea of a Malayan government general because they thought that such a figurehead would like, enchant the masses and give the impression that Singapore was independent, even though it remained a colony. So what the Singaporean leaders did instead was to suggest and invent a completely new office with a completely new style. In a way, Singaporean leaders were also fortunate. The British in late 1950s became in the, in the late 1956 became embroiled in the Suez Crisis, a historical episode which increased global pressure on Britain to accelerate decolonization. The colonial power subsequently accepted the idea to style a governor general with a distinct title, a title more suited and familiar to the Malayan context. And thus, Singaporean leaders came out with the Yang Dipertuan Negara, modeled after the Yang Dipertuan Agung, the king of the Federation of Malaya. So the vagueness of this new title would presumably not make other countries with governor generals jealous. But unlike the proposed Malayan governor general, the Yang Dipertuan Negara would have his power circumscribed using the right legal restrictions to ensure that he could not meddle with British prerogative over defence and external affairs. These additional measures appeased British anxieties. In short, the Yang Dipertuan Negara was a diet governor-general or a governor-general light. Lee Kuan Yew eventually chose Yusuf Ishak as his nominee for Yang Dipertuan Negara but he initially proposed nominating a member of Malayan royalty. How did the Singapore leadership's decision-making evolve? So even though the constitution was made official in 1958, it only came into force after the general elections in June 1959. So William Goode, the last colonial governor of Singapore, became the first Yang Dipertuan Negara only on an interim basis for the first six months. After winning the elections in June, Lee Kuan Yew, as leader of the victorious PAP, became Prime Minister. It was now his job to nominate the first Malayan-born Yang Dipertuan Negara, although it would be the British who would give the final approval. So PM Lee had an ingenious idea. Why not maximise this opportunity to further Singapore's bid for merger with Malaya? If he could get a member of Malayan royalty to fill the highest office in the land, it would not only, at least in terms of optics, bring Singapore closer to the Federation, but also weaken the widely held impression that the PAP was a radical, Chinese-dominated, communist-infected party. PM Lee was so determined to achieve merger and free Singapore from colonial rule that he was willing to play with the fire of borrowing legitimacy from Malayan royalty at risk of being branded as anti-socialist, pro-aristocracy, sellout, who contradicted the left-wing ideals of the PAP. Declassified official documents show 
that PM Lee tried to scout for potential royal candidates. One of them rumored to be the older brother of Tengku Abdul Rahman, who was also a prince from the Malayan state of Kedah. Besides him, the descendants of Sultan Hussein, the former Sultan of Johor, who signed the 1819 treaty with Raffles, still lived in the premises of the Istana Kampung Glam and could have been potential candidates. However, members of this defunct royal family became embroiled with a lot of social problems and the most senior member of the family was even declared a bankrupt. Thus, for these obvious reasons, they were mostly unsuitable. And then there was Tun Abdul Razak, the Malayan Deputy Prime Minister, who casually asked PM Lee to appoint a retired Malayan minister. But PM Lee did not want the role of young Dipertuan Negara to become a cushy retirement job for Malayan politicians. In the end, PM Lee failed to get a willing royal of repute, someone of sufficient integrity whom Singaporeans of all races could respect. There was also a time factor. He had only a few months to find this suitable person. There was no instant messaging or anything of that sort. So communication with potential candidates was tough. It was difficult. The next best thing to do was clear. In October 1959, PM Lee nominated Yusuf Ishak, who was at that time the chairman of the Public Service Commission, to be the PAP's choice of Yang Di Petua Negara. Yusuf was also former editor-in-chief of the Utusan Melayu, an anti-colonial newspaper well-respected among nationalist circles in Singapore. Yusuf was also Malay, and his elevation to the highest office in the land would still achieve that desired effect of watering down the PAP's Chinese image. Yusuf was at the right place, at the right time, and perhaps most importantly, he was of the right colour. You write about how Yusuf Ishak, while publicly proclaimed as a unifying figure for a multiracial Singapore state, also reinforced colonial power and elite hierarchy. So how was Yusuf situated in terms of class and how did he approach his role as Yang Di Pertuan Negara towards elites and regular people? So that's a very good question, Dave. Yusuf Ishak was often touted and promoted as a common man, not born of high birth. So he was supposed to be this symbol of equality who could unite all Singaporeans, while at the same time signifying the breaking down of class barriers in colonial society, ushering in a new era, an era of enlightened nationalist leadership. There's a lot of irony here because Yusuf was not an ordinary man. He did have a high-born heritage, and he was very proud of his aristocratic lineage tied to the Paga Ruyong Kingdom in Sumatra, which today is part of Indonesia. Even though Yusuf did not enjoy, so, so even though Yusuf did not enjoy the full privileges of Malay aristocracy, because the Paga Ruyong Kingdom was no longer in existence and was not under the patronage of the British, as in the case of the Malayan Sultanates, his background largely fits with the Malay aristocracy in colonial Malaya. Yusuf's ancestors were part of a land-owning class. He went to an, an elite English medium school. His father, Isha Ahmad, rose up the ranks of the colonial civil service and was a high-ranking official in the Department of Malayan Fisheries. I'm not saying that Yusuf and his family didn't work hard to achieve their successes. But what I'm saying is, 
that their successes were as much because of their economic resources, personal connections, and the social prestige that came with their ancestry. Therefore, Yusuf was not a common man, but he and his family enjoyed class dividends in colonial society. With Yusuf's elevation to Singapore's highest office, rather than signifying the breakdown of class divisions, it sort of fortified those divisions, at least structurally. It strengthened the idea that only colonial elites of a certain caliber could make it to such a position, validating the enduring inequalities between different social classes of colonial society. And furthermore, as Yang Di Pertuan Negara, he was representative of the queen and was therefore the remaining link to the crown. So when you think of the crown, you would probably think of gold, you would probably think of lavishness, you would probably think of splendor. The Yang Di Pertuan Negara continued to patronize and officiate a lot of the previous magnificent public ceremonies and state rituals previously presided over by the colonial governor. So now the Yang Di Pertuan Negara was the crown representative and he manifested the grandeur, the magnificence of the crown. This, these practices were, of course, not neutral practices. Instead, the lavish displays, the pomp and circumstance, the parades and pageantry visualized the idea that Singapore, that, the, that colonial society, remained stratified, that there was a reverence towards a certain kind of social order, that there was a hierarchy in place. When it comes to reinforcing the presence of an elite class, the Yang Di Pertuan Negara also engaged in a lot of the stratifying exclusive practices previously reserved and patronized by the colonial governor, hosting cocktail parties, being driven in luxury cars, living in colonial bungalows isolated from ordinary people. These patterns of colonial daily life continued entrenching the idea that there was social distance between the rulers and the ruled, the elite and the ordinary. In spite of the coming of a supposedly anti-colonial egalitarian nationalist regime. So in the final years of colonial Singapore, some continued to be more equal than others. It appears that choosing Yusuf Ishak was partially meant to reassure Malays in Singapore and the Federation that the Chinese majority PAP was sensitive to their concerns. At the same time, the PAP envisioned the Yangdi Pertuan Negara as a unifying symbol of Malayan culture. What were the pressing Malay concerns at the time and why was Yusuf Ishak ideal for this unifying task? So that's a very good and complicated question. So Dave, I mentioned earlier that Yusuf was meant to blunt the PAP's Chineseness. There was indeed a more complicated dynamic at play in the historical context. Why was it so important for the PAP to appear less Chinese? Singaporean Malays in late colonial Singapore was the most disadvantaged racial community because it was lacking in a business-owning class, it was lacking its own class of English-educated elites. There was Malay uh, underrepresentation in the elite income strata, and Malays had low levels of disposable wealth. The key reason for this disparity along racial lines was because of exploitative colonial capitalist system. 
immigration was left largely uncontrolled by the British and the trade and the Malay trading class was wiped out to make way for expat British capital. Colonial policies ossified the racial community to rural sectors rather than pushing them to be active participants in the capitalist economy. Under these circumstances, the idea of special indigenous rights was included in the self-governing constitution at the insistence of Malay political parties in Singapore. This clause of indigenous recognition was meant to protect the social, cultural and economic interests of this community from being marginalized by the majority race. Upon coming into power, the PAP government had to assure Singaporean Malays that despite being a Chinese-dominated party, the PAP could take good care of them and not sideline their interests. The party also had socialist leanings. Its policies were geared towards creating a more equal society regardless of race. But this was not enough because policies take years, if not generations, to have substantial effect. Furthermore, Malay political parties in Singapore did not help the PAP's cause as they continuously blamed the government for neglecting the Malays. If not handled well, the PAP could have lost the trust of Malays. A more visible assurance was needed to persuade this uh, racial community that the PAP government was on their side. And what could be a more assuring symbol than Yusuf Ishak, who was well known as a champion of Malay interest during his time as a journalist? By elevating him into such a prestigious office, it was, important, it was an important signal of the PAP's intentions that the party would live up to the spirit of the new constitution and that it would take good care of the Malay minority. So it's, it's a, some sort of peace offering, if you will, to the community. Furthermore, a visible non-Chinese person serving as the representation of Singapore would also generate the idea of inclusivity, intercommunal harmony, and respect among the different races. Singapore was and continues to be a multiracial nation and not a Chinese country. So Dave, when you asked about the racial di dimension just now, you are also right to hint that there were deeper bilateral implications. The PAP wanted to show the federation government was serious in respecting the rights of the Malays as the indigenous community of not only Singapore, but also of Malaya as a whole. The PAP would not do anything to threaten the idea of Malay's special position in the federation, which was the political premise of the ruling alliance government led by the Tengku and the United, Malayan, the United Malays National Organization, AMNO. So in, in doing so, PM Lee and the PAP hoped to advance the cause of merger and only then could Singapore be completely free of colonial rule. From your study of the role of Yang Di Pertuan Negara and Yusuf Ishak, what should Singaporeans take away about our decolonization and nation-building process? Personally, I think the most important message that the book offers, which speaks directly to the concerns of today, is that the idea of nation-building is firstly continuous and secondly, democratic. Decolonization was an uncertain, heated, a momentous process for Singapore undertaken at a specific period of time in the past. But the British have left Singapore and Singapore today is a fully sovereign independent nation. If 
we take decolonization simply as a political handover, then decolonization is really over. However, the generation of Lee Kuan Yew and Yusuf Isha grappled with predicaments similar to what we face today. The idea that the future is always uncertain and complex, that Singapore as a small entity needs to survive in a world of flux, and that unforeseen challenges lurk no matter how best we prepare for them. What would take Singapore forward, true then as it is today, is the idea of national values, whether it be meritocracy, equality, multiracialism. We need these values as an important compass to navigate the choppy, treacherous, uncharted waters of the future to move forward together as a nation. But the book also argues that the government can never have absolute control over what these values actually mean to every single Singaporean, even if the political leaders try. Instead, everyone has a shared responsibility to reflect on these national values and question how, as Singaporeans, they can best live up to the ideals which these values are meant to inspire. Only then could the idea of the nation as a community become real. Genuine nation building needs to be a democratic exercise. Singaporeans as individuals, as families, as social groups have to seize the initiative and define for themselves what these values mean to them. Nation building is a never-ending struggle, but through this shared struggle, Singaporeans across all divides would be able to forge bonds which even the most terrible of crises cannot break.